1: Welcome to Sports Talk New York tonight on WGBB, Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the 23rd day of January 2022. Our engineer, Brian Graves, as always, is with us, sitting right across the way. I'm happy to welcome you folks aboard tonight. I'm glad you could be with us. We have a nice show set up for you this evening. We have, leading off, former reliever for the New York Mets, the great Turk Wendell is going to be with us. And then we'll welcome in former Chicago Bear quarterback, world champion from Super Bowl XX, Jim McMahon, will be with us. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, Enjoy the show tonight on GBB. As always, some great people, good sports talk, and some great sports memories up ahead tonight. Social media, as always, we are out there on social media. We are on Facebook, we are on LinkedIn, Twitter. Big presence on Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk, and you can follow me on Twitter at B Donahue WGBB. And all past shows are cataloged out on the website, so if you miss one, don't worry. You can listen to it at your leisure. Well, our first guest, he kind of is the heir to Mo Drabowski, Tug McGraw, Roger McDowell. Kept the tradition of uh, lovable zany relievers alive, so to speak. He had a unique litany of on-the-field antics. We'll talk to him about his trademark necklace of animal teeth and claws from beast that uh, i believe he hunted himself and uh, turkey spurs too Uh, but no shark teeth so turk was also an effective and busy fireman hard slider really a rubber arm he appeared in 552 big league games from 93 to 2004 always willing to challenge hitters And he was voted the most superstitious athlete of all time by Men's Journal. We remember him, of course, his time with the Mets. It's great to welcome to the show tonight, Turk Wendell. Turk, good evening. How are you, sir? Well, I'm pretty good. How are things? Well,
0: things are pretty good out here
1: can't complain outstanding well you, you grew up in massachusetts turk if i'm not mistaken who are your favorite teams and players or or is it uh, obvious that it's the red sox
0: <laughs> well uh, yeah that's pretty obvious <laughs> uh my favorite player growing up was carly strensky
1: oh boy yeah did you yeah. know he's
0: a he's a long island boy I didn't know that. I thought he lived on Cape Cod or something.
1: No, he grew up out here in Bridgehampton, Long Island, on a potato farm, and uh, that's where he hails from. I remember him, Turk, back uh, in the 67 series, the year he won the Triple Crown, and uh, right. that was a tremendous accomplishment. That's a pretty good choice for you for your favorite ball player. So
2: you followed the Sox.
0: Yep, uh, still do, and basically I follow
2: the Mets and the Red Sox.
1: Nice. Okay. Well, most folks would like to know, Turk, how'd you get your nickname?
0: Uh, My grandpa, when I was about three years old, as the story goes, I was outside playing on a snow pile and jumped off face first and scraped my face up pretty good and was bleeding. And he had a friend of his named Turk, and he used to do a lot of dumb, crazy (laughs) things. And Well, my grandpa saw me do that and grabbed his jacket and started heading out the door, and he looked up, and I was up there doing it again. (laughs) Slow learner, learner, I guess.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I know the feeling. I had a nephew. Remember that thing, Turk, that you'd you'd put the wiffle ball in and stomp on the end of it, and the ball would pop up so you could hit it? Oh, yeah. I had a nephew who would look down at the ball, stomp on the thing, and it would hit him in the head. And then I saw him do it for a second time. That's when I knew he was he was a special guy too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice.
1: Now you are a Quinnipiac guy too.
0: Yeah, I graduated from Quinnipiac. I went there for three years. And
1: did you uh, you play ball there?
0: Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah.
1: But the Braves uh, took you in the fifth round in uh, 1999, I believe it was. 88. 88. Yeah, I had my, my, uh, numbers mixed up there. Uh, you joined the Mets in 97. Now, you originally wanted number 13. How come you didn't take number 13 with the Mets? Did, uh, Fonzie have it? Fonzie
0: wouldn't give it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, man. All right. Yeah, so you took 99. Why'd you take 99?
0: I have no idea. That's the only number <laughs> okay. that I thought that came into my head that I thought. Yeah, was a cool why number. not? Never nothing, had uh, nothing wrong never with had a that number. Yeah, never had a different number, so I had no idea what I would be other than thirteen. And uh, you know, I just decided that was a cool number. So and you it had you. nothing to do with uh, like Ricky Vaughn from the movie Major Leagues, and it really had nothing to do with Wayne Gretzky. Good. Okay.
1: We're speaking with Turk Wendell tonight on the program. Now, in the minors, most of the time you were a starter, Turk. Correct. Now, now what started you uh, on the road to relieving?
0: Well, I got to the big leagues as a starter. I got six uh, spot starts. Three, My, my first call-up, I got three starts, and then after that, there was three uh, inconsistent starts. But basically, I just ran out of options. Uh, to be sent to the minor leagues, and I was more or less used as an insurance policy for the Cubs. So once I was out of options, they couldn't send me down, so they put me in the, in the bullpen. And I was kind of like a long reliever, and then I got a little bit of a, a set-up role here and there. And then in 96, uh, Doug Jones, who unfortunately just recently passed away, he was signed to be our closer, and he faltered and I uh, just became closer by default. And uh, kind of set my path into the the being a setup guy closer from then on out in my career. Gotcha. All right. Well, I, I
1: want to discuss with you, Turk, some of the elements of your routine on the mound. Now we know bounding over the foul line. There's a lot of guys that do that. Oliver Perez used to do it with the Mets, uh, crossing the, the uh, first base line. What started you bounding over the foul line?
0: I remember in high school I went out, I pitched, and I gave up a run, and I couldn't figure out what I did 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 differently, and I realized I stepped on the line when I went out to take the mound that day. So I said I'm never doing that again.
1: Never again. Yeah, good, good, good way to take it, Turk. Yeah, definitely. Now, how about squatting on the mound until the catcher
0: squatted? Well, I'm just always out there. I was always usually the first guy on the field to take the mound, and. If sometimes the catcher made the last out or I was waiting for the backup catcher to come out, I would just uh, just sit and squat. And then when the catcher came out, and he squatted, and then I stood up. I, just, I don't know. Just something I did.
1: A lot of guys also, Turk, uh, have a relationship with another guy on the field uh, with him. In your case, you waved to the center fielder before your first pitch. How did that develop?
0: That started in, I it was either high school or summer ball. Um, Jimmy Duquette, who has an XM radio show,
2: he ah, and I grew up together
0: yeah. and used to be a former GM of the Mets. Um, we grew up together playing uh, Babe Ruth's high school, summer ball, collegiate ball, and I worked really quickly and I went out, pitched the inning, came back in, Jimmy comes up to me and goes, dude, you got to make sure I'm ready. You threw one or two pitches, and I wasn't even turned around. I was looking the other direction. <laughs> so I said, all right, then. I'll make sure you're ready to go before I throw a pitch. <laughs> yeah, there you go,
1: folks. Attributed to Jim Duquette, who we see on SNY. And uh, he does have a radio show now, Turk. That is true. And, and uh, I, I'd like to get Jim on the program one time. How about, He's a great guy. How about brushing your teeth between innings?
0: Rookie ball in the Appalachian League in, in 88, I had a bad taste in my mouth, and I asked the bat boy if he'd run up to the clubhouse and give me a toothbrush. And then I went out the next inning after brushing my teeth in the dugout, struck out the side looking. Pretty good, yeah. I thought, hmm, okay, I'm on to something here. And, it, you know, that's just how things started, and that's how routines, basically, they just get uh, athletes and, and individuals, I and mean, we're habitually creatures of habit, and through success and failure, you just kind of do stuff weird, weird stuff like that. And for me, it just was a little bit different than most people, uh, you know, normal things. But um, ironically, I didn't uh, I didn't do anything like that. I didn't brush my teeth. Didn't chew black licorice. I didn't do any of that uh, from 1995 season until I uh-huh. finished in, in 2005. I pitched a whole other 10 years and never did any of that stuff. Okay. Other than jumping over the foul line, obviously.
1: Well, athletes are uh, pretty much well known to be a superstitious bunch. I mean, Keith Hernandez, very superstitious guy. You have Wade Boggs, for example, had to eat chicken before every ball game. So
0: that you're the, at a certain time too.
1: Yeah, I mean you, you're not the only guy, Turk, that, that's got superstitions. So there are plenty of athletes out there. Now, I, I read somewhere that Taiwan Walker, who wore ninety nine for the Mets this year, you and him had a little exchange uh, before the season. Of of was yeah, it the necklaces? I, I've,
0: uh I've never ta- talked directly to Taiwan. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, no offense taken, but he didn't know who I was. I mean, heck, I think when I played, he was probably still in the womb or maybe a first grader. No, that's uh, the, the way you know. that these, these
1: guys are, Turk. I always uh, <laughs> believe that these guys today have no sense of who came before them or the history of, of, of the game, which, uh, which I think is important. But go ahead, tell, well, it, tell I mean, us what happened his, with Taiwan. I was,
0: I mean, but in his defense, I mean, I wasn't some superstar player that, um, you know, everybody that knew anything about baseball would know. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I was just a mediocre re- re- relief pitcher. But uh, so Jay Horowitz, who's a legend in the Mets. Yes. <laughs> he got hold of me and said, asked me if uh, I would be willing to, you know, I think, he thought it would be a fun, fun story because no one else had wore 99 since me. And uh, if I would send him a toothbrush, you know, I'd make him a necklace. So I did.
1: And the rest is history. Correct. Yeah. We're speaking with the great Turk Wendell tonight on the program. Now, people used to compare you to Fidrich, the bird, who people should look up and Google. They have a, a, a documentary on the bird on the MLB channel, and if you're lucky enough to catch it, uh, you didn't like those comparisons to Fidrich.
0: Well, I didn't think I was that animated on the mound. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I did a couple odd things and stuff, but you know, he was—he was quite a colorful character talking to the ball and manicuring the mound and stuff. From the videos that I seen, and I think I remember seeing him pitch or hearing about him pitch. And unfortunately, he was a great pitcher and had a, he's, uh, had a short career with arm injuries.
1: He he had, I believe, one or two great years, Turk. That that uh, he he was really dominant in the American League, and uh, he, as you say, uh, spoke to the ball like uh, Art Carney on the honeymooners. Uh, he manicured the mound, especially around the pitching rubber, and uh, the 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 fans uh, like you uh, enjoyed it. Like, uh, when you well, used to slam the rosin bag down at Shea Stadium, Turk, the fans loved it.
0: Well, and and you know that <laughs> the ironic thing, and you just talked about Mark Friedrich being a great pitcher, if both of us sucked, no one would have cared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I didn't think I was a great pitcher, but obviously I wasn't that bad. I mean, I stuck around the big leagues for quite a while. You did. But... um uh yeah, it's just uh, it's pretty ironic that um, you know people want to talk about that more than more than other things, which I guess is fine. It's better than talking smack about me or you know telling me I suck. I suppose.
1: Yeah no it's uh, I tell you people are looking forward to hearing you tonight on the program cuz people people do remember. I prefer talking to uh former ball players and my audience is a little older too so they they like to hear from guys like yourself. Now you had you had a very strong work ethic when you were uh pitching Kirk uh, Turk didn't
0: you? Yeah I mean I had a really uh kind of strict training regimen or routine that I followed every day with Arm exercises, sit-ups, push-ups, and running long distance, five to eight miles every day before the games. And, uh, you know, nowadays, guys don't really run anymore, but I try to teach kids, hey, you know, when your legs go, you're, that's it, you're done. So your legs gotta be super strong, like Nolan Ryan, he'd go out and pitch nine innings, ten innings, and then get on the bike afterwards for, you know, half an hour to two hours or something
1: like that. Yeah, the legs with Nolan Ryan really uh, played a part in, in his delivery. Uh, if you watch that, folks, you'll see Nolan Ryan uh, high kick and uh, really, like, like Seaver, pushed off with the legs. Now, how did you like playing in front of the Chicago fans, Turk?
0: Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Chicago has great, great fans. Um, uh I mean, how, how do you not like fans that are into the, to the game, into the team, love the team, support the team? You know, how, how can you not? And support supports players. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just elevates your game to a whole nother level. Um, I remember playing in Montreal before they moved out of there, and it was, it was hard to, to pitch there because you really had to self-motivate yourself because the crowd, when the crowd's into it and it makes it like a playoff atmosphere, it really takes your game to a, the highest level that it could be
1: see adrenaline moving yeah
0: oh for sure
1: yeah I can see that. Uh, that now with the Cubs Turk Riggleman wasn't a big fan of your yours and your routine
0: well you know and, and Riggleman's the one that sat me down and asked me to stop doing all that but uh, you know Riggs is a great guy great manager and, and a very dear friend um, he asked me to stop doing all that stuff and you know at first I thought well heck this sucks he's He's raining on my parade, and it literally was the first conversation that I had with him. And, uh, you know, not doing it, I just created a different routine. And, you know, like I said earlier, the routine is what puts me and all players into a comfort zone. So the more comfortable Mm -hmm. you feel, the better you're most likely going to perform. And it helped me a lot mature as a player and as a person
1: true very true now ed lynch we've had ed on the program great guy too ed lynch uh he was sort of siding with Riggleman on that but uh eddie real great guy
0: uh yeah i didn't get to know ed lynch all that well he was the gm i don't even know when there was so many different gms when I was with the cubs was, uh sid Thrift. uh Oh, gosh, I can't wow, remember. there's Larry Himes. Name. Yeah. Larry Himes, Jim Thrift, uh, Andy McPhail, Ed Lynch. <laughs> Every year we had new GMs, new coaches, new managers, new pitching coaches. Real stable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's probably why there wasn't much success there.
1: We are speaking with Turk Wendell tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, as we said, Fonzie had number 13. Uh, you took 99. And it had nothing to do with Charlie Sheen and, and Wild Thing. You, you, no. nah, just, just a cool number to have, and uh, that should be noted, folks, because some people asked that question, and we wanted to clear that up. Now, h- how about your contract that that you uh, signed with all the '99s on it? That was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, it was cool, and that's, that was a total. Uh, PR media thing created by my agent I had nothing to do with any of that stuff
1: okay yeah that clears that up now is it true Turk that you wanted to play one year for free
0: that is correct and unfortunately the union got word of that and said that they wouldn't allow me to do that in hindsight I should have just played for the minimum and then donated my salary Good thought.
1: Yeah, good thought. Why did you feel you wanted to play one, one year for free, Turk?
0: Well, because I think I owed that to the game. Um, and, you know, truth be told, you can drive around any city in the summers or spring, summers, and fall. And there's adult playing, you know, it's not baseball, but it's softball. Because mm-hmm. it's slower and, and um, people that actually pay to be on the team to play. And baseball is the greatest game I've ever invented in my eyes and I just think I owed it to the game and a tribute to the game that uh, we play this game that we love and I want to play for free
1: that certainly is a great point of view Turk and you're right about baseball being uh, the greatest sport there is and it's funny how you say guys pay and that's true because uh, guys pay to, to play softball they, they pay dues or they pay for their uniforms uh, whatever they're playing for, for a trophy, for a keg of beer, uh, people do it for enjoyment and you're exactly right about that. And uh, I, I find that uh, very interesting and uh, very appealing and uh, very refreshing as well, Turk. Now, there, there was an instant, you're, you're an outdoors man, as we said, hunting, fishing, archery, you got that from your dad. And there was a situation in Pikes Peak Natural Forest where, uh, w- what happened? You and your buddy got lost?
0: <laughs> no, no, that was, that was fabricated. We had tracked this mountain lion all day, and then I got to finally capture the lion. It was right before dark, and we hiked about 14 miles Wow! back into this wilderness. And uh, I just looked at him, and I said, dude, as far as we've hiked... I said, we're foolish to try to walk out of here in the dark. It was super rocky. Uh, like I said, a long way. Some places the snow was over our waist. I said, one wow, of us break a leg <laughs> or an ankle. Yeah. You know, one of us break an ankle or something, into a leg trying to get out of here, dragging this 183 pound lion. I said, let's just spend the night and walk out in the morning and we can see what the heck we're doing more careful. And uh, so I just built a fire and went to sleep slept about six hours i didn't know it was 17 below zero that night but uh and all i had was the clothes on my back and i always i always carry a windproof lighter with me just in case a situation like that and uh my ex-wife called the search and rescue and the funny thing was the next day i come walking out of the, the, the wilderness and I go over to my pickup, and I saw all these people all over the place. And I said, hey, what's going on? And I said, oh, we're looking for this guy. <laughs> and uh, I go, well, huh, here I am. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man.
1: What did you guys do with the mountain lion?
0: Oh, I ate it. And was okay. uh, really good, very really good eating, uh, believe it or not. It's a, it's a white meat, kind of like a pork. And, uh, of course, I mounted the whole thing, full body mounts and my... uh in my trophy room,
1: and the the teeth stayed in in his mouth.
0: Uh, no, I got the teeth. And, okay, well, no, i was correction. I got the claws and the teeth and stuff like that. Also, it's all part of the yeah, part of the trophy.
1: Wow, what what an adventure, man! To, to snow up to your waist—that's no good, Dirk. Man,
0: oh yeah, and to track that thing, all that you know, that that distance. Yeah, to get within uh, within eight yards of it and shoot it with a bow and arrow. It's pretty, pretty cool. We'll talk about an adrenaline rush.
1: I bet, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a crazy scene, that's for sure. Now, is there one person in your life, Turk, that you credit, uh, a parent, a teammate, who had the most uh, positive impact on your career?
0: Uh, I had so many different coaches along the way, and I think... If I could put a finger maybe on one player, uh, maybe Steve Avery. Steve. He and I were rookie ball yeah. teammates and uh, instructional league. And, you know, I try to explain to some of these kids that don't look at them as enemies. Your teammates are there to make you better and push you to be better. And Ave and I would, would uh, you know, I'm going to strike out 10. Well, I'm going to strike out 11. I'm going to pitch 9 innings. I'm going to pitch 10 innings. So it was a friendly battle within our, you know, our, ourselves to really push each other to be the best we could, and I think we just fed off of each other.
1: Okay, yeah, he, he had some great years, Steve Avery.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, when you're in the minor leagues, a lot of times guys get they get jealous of each other, and they, you know, it's 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 not a friendly thing like that. I mean, yeah, ultimately, we're both. Know, fighting for the same jobs and the same goals to get to the big leagues. But uh, yeah, I think that's where just true friendships evolve. And you know, back in the day, there wasn't cell phones and computers and all this other stuff. So I and mean, we had Nintendo, and after a ball game, we'd either on a bus ride or we'd be sitting in a hotel room watching a movie, pl- ordering a pizza or playing video games uh, or playing cards. I mean, guys were really close-knit in the minor leagues back then and uh, that's where some of my nearest and dearest friends were in baseball because once you get to the big leagues, guys are older and more mature, they have families, they have kids, so you only really see them at the ballpark.
1: So there's an interesting point for your kids out there is to, to use your teammates as a trusted resource, as, as Turk brings out, uh, can be a real help in your career. Now, looking back on your career, Turk, if there's anything that you could have done differently, what would you have done?
0: Uh, I think I might have pushed to to be a starter a little bit more and have myself have the opportunity to establish myself as a starter. Now, I, re- I referenced in 96 I was a closer for the Cubs and mm-hmm. I had a very successful season where I saved 18 out of 21 saves, and then they signed Mel Rojas to a big contract. Oh the next, boy! Uh, that that off they gave him I think at the time it was huge like three years, 12 million or 14 million. So the next spring, Riggleman pulled me aside and he said, "Hey, I want you to be uh, I want you to be in the rotation." And I you know awesome because. You know, heck, I, I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a starting pitcher. Right. So I sta- I started the entire spring training in 97 with, with the Cubs. And then the very last day of spring training, Riggs pulled me aside and said, Hey, I just love having you in the bullpen. If something happens, you'll be the first person in the rotation. And uh, lo and behold, that was kind of lip service. And, you know, Riggs came up and said, My hands are tied, and it wasn't my decision. I'm sorry. So... Unfortunately, it never uh, never evolved.
1: Never panned out. Yeah, poor, poor Mel Rojas. He was a mess when he was here at Turk.
0: Well, you know Mel's a good guy, but I yeah. think a lot of times when guys sign big contracts, they get complacent and they get a little bit lazy. And um, you know, it's just sometimes it's the nature of the beast where you get too comfortable, and you know that's why I love playing in in Chicago and New York and Philadelphia because the fans expected your best each and every single day cool. so it pushed me Great. to to work harder to be my best every day i didn't want to let my teammates down i wouldn't let my family down i sure cool. so didn't want to let the fans down and the one thing where my career ended well i shouldn't say it ended but going to colorado as a pitcher's graveyard anyhow and yeah. uh, in, in 2004 and i actually went to spring training in 2005 with the astros but uh in Colorado, it was a totally different atmosphere. Great fans, but they didn't really care if we won or lost. It wasn't a, you know, hey, if you lost the game, give it a home run, you got to worry about wearing a flak jacket out of the ballpark at the end of the game. <laughs> yeah. It was hey, no big deal. We're just here to have fun for a party. You know, the Rocky Mountain High um, <laughs> yeah. kind of atmosphere, and uh, that took a lot of the. Uh, it took a lot of the zip out of me. It just it. it and like I said, self-motivating. It, it was just tough to really put my arms around that and, and keep pushing myself when no one really cared.
1: Yeah, you're right. The, they're not going to boo you like they will here or like they will out in Chicago if you don't give 100%. Oh,
0: Philadelphia was the worst. I mean, I was out there trying to pitch, and I had a, a, a torn tendon to my elbow, and I'm getting death threats.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they're rough. The city of brotherly love is kind of rough, isn't it, Turkey?
0: <laughs> oh yeah, and well, that's right. After I got traded from the from the Cubs or the Mets to the Phillies, and, yeah, you know, I'm getting death threats and people are sending me all these different, you know, hate mail and booing me when I'm coming off the field and and uh, so the next, I ended up having surgery and missed the 2002 season In 2003. I back to myself again, pitching well. And I remember one of the reporters asking me. Aren't you glad that the fans are are cheering for you now and they're supporting you? I said, Well, I I am, but not really, because if they're really true fans, they should boo me now too. If you don't like me, don't like me. Don't don't fake it or jump on that winning horse just because I'm pitching well. Mm-hmm. Great
1: point, great point, Turk. Now, one guy, when you when you come into a ball game, who do you not want to see in that batter's box?
0: I don't give a crap. Okay, I'm getting. I don't care who it is. I'm getting you out. That's my mentality. It doesn't matter.
1: Beautiful. And I,
0: I actually hoped, and I want it to be their best hitter because that's what it's all about.
1: Com- competition. That's it, Turk. Yeah, you're yeah. exactly right. And that's a great way to end it. It's been a pleasure, Turk. Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us back up here in New York. We wish you all the best. And again, thank you very much, Turk Wendell.
0: All right. Thanks, Bill. Have a good night.
1: All the best. That's Turk Wendell, ladies and Take gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll talk with Super Bowl XX champion Jim McMahon. Stick around, folks.
0: You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show.
1: All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB. Don't forget coming up Tuesday, January 25th, the Baseball Writers Association Hall of Fame vote coming up. Will Big Poppy get in? Will Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds get in? Kurt Schilling? Scott Rowland? That's a, a name who, who guys who have come up with uh, votes in the past. It's interesting to see... Interesting to see who's going to join Hodges, uh, Buck O'Neill, Bud Fowler, Minnie Minoso, Jim Cott, Tony Oliva at the induction ceremony this summer. We are, of course, folks, I just wanted to mention the, uh, passing of Islander great Clark Gillies number nine. Uh, great man. He was on the show twice with me, a great man, a great Islander, and a great Long Islander as well. Patrick Calabria, who covered the Isles uh, for many years back in the heyday, uh, gave a statement to me earlier today, a Hall of Famer on the ice, a Hall of Famer off the ice. Just a great human being. He'd give you the shirt off his back, but first he'd make you listen to one of his terrible jokes. In the social setting, he made everyone feel special, and there wasn't a nicer human being on the planet. So again, we mourn the passing. Number nine, Jethro, the great Clark Gillies, ladies and gentlemen. On to our next guest. He played in the National Football League for 15 seasons, most notably with the Chicago Bears, played his college football at BYU. He was a two-time All-American and an inductee into the College Hall of Fame, selected by the Bears' fifth overall in the 1982 NFL draft Uh Great personal success with the 85 Bears team that won the franchise's first Super Bowl back in Super Bowl 20. Also, you may not remember a Super Bowl champion in 31 with the Green Bay Packers. It's great to welcome to the show tonight, Jim McMahon. Jim, good evening. Hey, how you doing there, Bill? Great. It's wonderful to have you aboard, Jim. I, I wanted to ask you right off the bat, did you see the Bucks game?
2: I saw a little bit of the end there. I thought they were going to screw it up there, the Rams.
1: Uh, um, uh, you can never, you can never count Brady out, can you, Jim?
2: <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. They, they they had some great turnovers there at opportune times, and he had a chance to bring him back again, and he did. He got the game tied. And then, uh, you know, instead of running out the clock and going into overtime, the Rams, you know, they got offensive and they, they were able to score.
1: Yeah just uh, just the way that he moves the ball though and and directs that team amazing it's a shame you won't get to see him in the Super Bowl, but I have a feeling he'll be back
2: <laughs> yeah he might as well I mean he's had a great year, I guess so
1: true, true.
2: He's, he's still playing well. Why not keep playing, especially what they're paying these guys nowadays
1: Oh definitely that is true Jim now you are we call you a local guy you you were born in Jersey City. Uh, but then you moved to, to San Jose, California, later on to Utah. I have to ask you, who were your boyhood sports heroes when you were a kid?
2: Uh, I always liked Joe Willie Namath. Uh, you know, Mickey Mantle. I, I, I loved baseball. I loved uh, you know, Bart Starr because they, they used to win a lot. Sure. I like the guys they used to win. Yes, <laughs>
1: yes, uh, yes. Yeah, some great heroes there. Joe Willie Namath. Uh, speaking of Super Bowls, uh, that's the first one I really remember. Super Bowl three, and uh, re- that was the first game to be called a Super Bowl, and uh, just just an amazing uh, feat uh, for the New York Jets. And being a Jet fan, Jim. That's the last time that I've been happy. Was when I was ten years
2: old. <laughs> yeah, they've they've had quite a dry spell as well. Huh?
1: Yeah, it's it, things things aren't going too well. But that's topic for another day. Now, you started off as a punter at Brigham Young.
2: Yes, I well, I made the varsity my freshman year as the, as the punter, and I was also the third team quarterback. Uh, I became second team QB uh, about the fourth game of the that first year uh, our senior guy got hurt uh so i still probably still punted my freshman year and then i was able to to uh, get some starts my sophomore year
1: right and uh the game i want to talk about if you remember junior year the holiday bowl uh you faced i believe it was southern methodist and uh nice game to take us back to that game
2: well, it was a nice game for SMU for, for three and a half quarters. <laughs> and they, were, they were pretty much running all over us, and I, I didn't play well at all in the first half. We got down, um, and then we were able to come back. With a, about four minutes to go, we were down 20 points and got the ball, went down and scored. Uh, tried an onside kick, got it, went down and scored again, and then uh, tried another onside kick, didn't get it, but we our defense finally held. And uh, forced him to punt. We ended up blocking the punt, and we had enough time for about three plays. And the first two were very uneventful. And then the, the last play of the game, with three seconds left, just went back and and just threw it as high. <clears throat> you know, I just wanted to get it into the end zone. And uh, fortunately, our tight end Clay Brown came down with the ball around four or five of the SMU guys.
1: Yeah, and they they called it the Miracle Bowl, didn't they, Jim?
2: Yes yeah, they talked about that for quite a while. They still do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and your uh, senior year, you finished third in the Heisman Trophy voting.
2: Yeah, I thought I got screwed my junior year. You know, I, I had yeah. a really good, really good junior year. Uh, I set I don't know how many NCA records that year. I was the first guy to throw for over four thousand yards. I had forty-seven touchdowns that year, and uh, I missed about three games. If we take away all the time that I, you know, they took me out of the game.
1: You since so, uh, go ahead, Jim. I'm sorry.
2: Uh, so I should have. I really should have won it my junior year. In my senior year, I got hurt. I missed a couple ball games, and uh, I, I believe Marcus Allen won that year. So you know, I, I lost to George Rogers and, and Marcus Allen, two two pretty good ball players.
1: You did, yeah. The, I believe you meet up with Marcus a little ways down the line too. <laughs> you, you and him uh, bucking heads, Mr. Marcus Allen, uh, Hall of Famer. Now, you since went back to BYU and completed your coursework.
2: I about five six years ago I I had about uh, I think it was about five classes to finish up. And I promised my folks and I promised Lavelle Edwards that I would get it done. And uh you know, it it wasn't very fun. I mean doing homework when you're fifty five <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> No. I didn't like doing it when I was 18. I no.
1: probably didn't like <laughs> yeah. doing it at
2: 55. Exactly. Yeah. But I was able to uh get through it and and
1: uh, get the diploma so. <clears throat> As we said, the Bears selected you 5th overall in 1982. Uh now they they weren't real happy, Jim, that you came out in your first public function with a beer in your hand. The the, the coach Ditka was not impressed. The Papa Bear, George Hallis, didn't like it. Talk a little bit about what happened in that situation.
2: Well, it was draft day. They had called me up and said, "Hey, can you come to Chicago?" And I said, "Yeah." So I just took a, a three-hour flight. <clears throat> the guy picked me up at the airport in limousine. I had. It had some beverages in there, and we had a 45-minute ride to uh, Hallis Hall, so I figured, what the hell, what they're in here, I might as well drink one or two. It wasn't <laughs> yeah. like I was 18. You know, right, 22 yeah. Years old, so.
1: Nothing wrong with that. Now, in 83... I probably
2: shouldn't have got out of the limo with you know the two or three I had still left on the string, but <laughs> yeah. I wasn't even thinking about the press at that point.
1: Load the pockets up, why not? Yeah, I hear you now. You've made a habit, Jim, of changing the play in the huddle and at the line of scrimmage. That drove Ditka nuts, too.
2: Yes, it drove a lot of coaches nuts because if they can't have control over everything, it uh, you know they get a little bit upset. But uh, I was taught in college that if you can see something that you can exploit on the defense, to do it, and that's that's the way I played my whole career. You know, I didn't care what the play would, was called. I would have I would have rather called every play from the line of scrimmage. Right. I had my druthers, but, uh, you know, they they want to be too much involved as coaches.
1: Understood. Now, in 84, you go to the title game, you lose to the 49ers. Now, a couple of injuries uh, th- during that time it seemed to be a violent game against the Raiders at Soldier Field. Uh, I, th- I think he got ambushed by two L.A. defenders. Do you remember that?
2: Oh, oh. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I still remember. Rough.
2: I can still feel it. It uh yeah, it actually cut the bottom third of my kidney off.
1: Oh uh, man.
2: So I was bleeding and turning. I was playing. I played six games that year with a broken throwing hat. You know, they kept shooting it up for the games. So I don't know how I was able to complete any balls, but uh, <clears throat> but the uh, the kidney injury definitely ended my uh ended my season and almost ended my career. Had they taken it out, which they wanted to do. Because I was basically bleeding to death, uh, but I talked the doctor into let me let me go a couple of days, and then on Tuesday this happened on a Sunday. So on Tuesday night, uh, they came in and gave me a transfusion. Said we have to operate. You're dying, and I and I begged them to let me let me go till the morning. I said I feel it healing, doc, is what I told them. But uh, this yeah. thing, you know, somebody upstairs was looking out for me because yeah. uh, this thing just closed up overnight. And I was able to continue my career.
1: Wonderful, outstanding, Jim. Now, '85, the magical season, fifteen and one. You guys more or less set the stage and were the forerunners for uh, videos back back in then. That, that was when MTV actually played videos, and I know that's hard to believe for you kids out there. But yes, there was a time when it was music television. How did you guys get involved in the Super Bowl Shuffle?
2: Well, that was the brainchild of Willie Galt and a buddy of his that was in the music business. You know, okay. They, to, they they brought they brought it to us like this. They said, "Hey, we want to do a record that, uh, and the proceeds are going to go to feed the homeless for Thanksgiving and Christmas." And we thought, "Okay, that's a that's a nice thing to do." Nice, yeah. But but record was the only thing they said, and so we went and did our parts. You know, the guys studio, <clears throat> all the guys that had speaking parts. Couple of weeks later, uh, Willie came to us and said, "Now we have to do a video." And we're like, "No, that wasn't part of the deal." And he said, "No, no. When you when you do a record these days, you have to do a video too." Said, sure. Oh,
0: that's, yeah. It's
2: not part of the deal. And Walter Payton and I both complained and said, "Look, we're not we're not going to that because that, that wasn't that's not in the contract." And so they ended up uh, filming this thing, the shuffle, the, the day after we lost to Miami on a Monday night. You know, we lost our only game that year. Flew home to Chicago that night, got in about 3 or 4 in the morning. Guys had to be at the studio, I think, at 8 or 9 in the morning, and they were there for about 8 hours. Oh, man. uh, Walter and I didn't go. We told them we weren't going. And about a week after that, uh, Willie mentioned to us in the locker room before practice one day that if we didn't do our parts, we're going to get sued. So. What you see in that
1: video is one pissed off white man doing whatever the hell I was doing. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Well, as I said, you guys were the forerunners. Uh, the the Mets came up with one in '86, and uh, from then it seemed like a bunch of guys uh, were doing videos. We're speaking with Jim McMahon tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, you you were noted, Jim, uh, when you're running the football to slide head first. Uh, how did you get started with that rather than sliding feet first to protect yourself?
2: Well, I did. I slid feet first a couple of times, I still got hit. So I said, the hell with that. Yeah. I'm going to make them tackle me. You know, what, what if they miss? You know, you never know. But I'm not just going to give myself up like that and still get hit.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: If I'm going to get hit and it's going to be going forward.
1: Right. And uh, in the Super Bowl, forty-six to ten over New England. I remember that game, Super Bowl Twenty. I can't, I can't believe it's Super Bowl Twenty. It seemed like a few years ago. And man, what are we up? It's been to a long now? time. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that. Now you were the first uh, quarterback in the history of the Super Bowl to rush for two TDs.
2: Yeah, I didn't realize it at the time, or still. But I, w- I would have rather throw them for two or three than run them. But I was just happy to get a win,
1: right? And and a great win it was. Now, during that season, well, actually, I think it was '86. One of the most blatant fouls you'll see on a football field. Uh, you were playing Green Bay. Uh, you got body slammed by Charles Martin. W- what was that all about?
2: Well, they were they were trying to take certain players out of the game yeah Uh, i actually i actually got warned the night before by one of their players that hey uh you know our coach has been saying if we get a shot on you to take it so he goes you might want to just be careful (laughs) yeah So i thought i would see it coming i didn't know he was going to you know jump me from behind like that
1: yeah it shows character it really does man that was terrible i remember that too now, now, once you left Chicago, Jim, uh, Buddy Ryan must have been a fan of you because he brought you in in Philly and in Arizona. Tell us about your relationship with the uh, the genius Buddy Ryan.
2: Well, Buddy, uh, for some reason, Buddy always took a liking to me because uh, he didn't like hardly anybody that ever played offense. You know, he <laughs> loved his defensive guys, <laughs> <Yes, side>. but <laughs> he could care less about anybody else on the team, but... I think it was because I had a coach in college that, that Buddy had coached with somewhere down the line, and uh, he had called Buddy and said, "Look, kid can play." So Buddy always uh, treated me well. He did he gave me a chance in Philly, and then uh, and then out here in Arizona where I live now. So I'm glad he he got me out here in '94 because that, that's when I knew I wanted to live here. Yeah, great weather, you know, great golf courses, good good time.
1: Wonderful, yeah. Now. You also won a Super Bowl with Green Bay. People forget about that. What Were you second or third string with Green Bay?
2: I was backing up Brett Park, yeah.
1: Okay, yeah. And, uh, hey, a ring is a ring, right?
2: Yeah, and it's a nice ring. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they spent a little money on it. Yes. I wish I had one.
1: Uh, now, you showed up at the White House wearing your Bears jersey. Tell us uh, the story behind that.
2: Well, as I explained to all my teammates and the coaches, coaching staff before we left to the White House, I said, "Look, you know, uh, the Bears never got to go to the White House after we won the Super Bowl. If people remember, the space shuttle blew up two days after we won, so all All the focus was there, which you know, which was rightly so. But I think they could have snuck us in there somewhere between the time that uh, we won and the time we actually went." Mm-hmm. So I was just representing uh, Chicago, and I told about, I mentioned that to all my teammates and coaches as well. So they they weren't upset about it.
1: No, okay, yeah,
0: that, that's so the I main think, thing. Well,
2: Fritz Shermer, Fritz Shermer was our defensive coordinator, and he was he was a little upset. But I think it brought back bad memories because he was also the defensive coordinator for the Rams when we beat them to go to the Super Bowl in Chicago.
1: So. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think he
2: has some bad feelings about that. Yeah,
1: okay. But uh, you were, the the Bears eventually were invited to the White House. You made it there, Jim.
2: Yeah, finally.
1: Yes, yeah. Did. Barack Obama brought you in because uh, I guess he said he was a Bears fan, right?
2: Well, he, yeah, he was from Illinois. Or he was in uh, whatever he was for Illinois. I, I don't know, senator, congressman, whatever he was. I, I don't <laughs> even know. Yeah. Now we're speaking with Jim
1: McMahon tonight on Sports Talk New York. Let's talk about a serious topic, Jim, concussions. Now, I've had Conrad Dobler on the show in the past. I've had Hall of Famer Joe DeLamalore from the Buffalo Bills. Both uh, are outspoken on the topic of brain injuries. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about your background there.
2: Well, I've been having a lot of trouble since uh, it's probably been about 10, 12 years now. Yeah. Uh, I started having really bad headaches and bad bad thoughts. You know, all I was doing was laying in a dark room most of the day. Uh, if I didn't have to go anywhere, that's that's where I would be. And luckily, uh, I did a cover for Sports Illustrated, and uh, these two doctors in New York called me after that uh, they saw the article, and they said, come to New York. We think we can help you. We think we know what's going on. And so I ended up going to New York, spent a week there. Uh, they explained to me what they thought was going on, and then they put me in an MRI, and it just confirmed what their thoughts were. You know, I had some a couple of different spots in my head and my neck that was blocking my spinal, flow, uh, spinal fluid from flowing properly. And okay. it was backing up into my brain, just causing all kinds of havoc. So uh, <clears throat> they came up with this. It, the treatment is called IGAT. It's image-guided atlas treatment, and it's not a manual manipulation. It's a machine that makes a sound, and the sound wave uh, moves the bones and uh, gets them out of the way of that fluid so it can flow. And I still go back. I have to go back to New York every three to four months to have this done again. Uh, the only other option they told me was to, to drill a hole in my brain and run a shunt. Or put in a shunt and run a tube down to my stomach, and I said, "No, I'd rather do. I'd rather deal with this. At least I yeah. know what's going on with me now." Right. You know, I've had a lot of teammates uh, take their lives because they didn't know what was happening. Um, so everybody that I, I come in contact with is, is suffering from head or neck injuries. I, I, I forward forward the uh, doc's phone number to them and say, "Go see him. He can take care of you."
1: Do you think the NFL is doing enough? To curtail the incidence of brain injuries, Jim.
2: Well, they're they're trying. I mean, yeah. there's only so much you can do. I mean, it's a violent game. There's big, fast people out there. When they when they collide, your brain is going to be bouncing against the side of your, your skull because your mm-hmm. brain is, is floating on fluid. It's not stuck to anything, Right. Than your spinal column. So you know, you're going to have injuries. It's just uh, whether or not <clears throat> you know. I don't know what they. I know they have a tent that the guys have to go into on the sideline i don't know i don't know what the hell they do in that tent but some guys come out of the tent and can still play other ones they don't let play so you know who knows what they're doing but you know they're trying but it, you know the injuries are going to happen
1: something i wanted to speak to you about uh uh that hits home for me jim is uh, i suffer from spinal problems and and uh the such and they wanted to give me medical marijuana, but in New York State, there's there's such a, a rigmarole to go through. Uh, tell me about your experience with with medical cannabis.
2: Well, I think it's got to get to everybody on Earth.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's a medicinal herb. It's not a drug. You know, we've been right. lied to for over a hundred years by our government. You know, who who could have figured that?
1: Nah, uh, never happened, right? They, yeah.
2: They've had a they've had a patent on it for over 75 years. So they knew how good it was. But, you know, Big Pharma is, is uh, kind of runs this country. So they're more in, they're more in tune with Big Pharma than they are with uh, medicinal medicinal herbs.
1: Yeah. Now, y- you were among the signatories of an open letter addressed to the NHL uh, regarding Changing the league's policy towards cannabis. Whatever happened with that letter, Jim?
2: Uh, I have no idea. But I, I hear they're they're starting to change the rules, whether or not they're testing for it now or not. I, I don't know. I haven't kept that close uh, a watch on it. But uh, you know, because they'll they'll give you any kind of pill you want. But you know, then you can't. You know, I, I used to not be able to sleep for a day or two after games because they're just so wired up on everything. Everything they gave you to play. Yeah. And then you can't go home and just you know smoke a fatty just so you can sleep.
1: Mm-hmm. Understood. Jim McMahon is our guest tonight on Sports Talk New York. Let's go back and talk a little bit about some of the uh, the routine that that you went through when you were a player. The, the headband. Now Rizal didn't want you wearing a headband, right?
2: Well, he didn't want me wearing the headband that said Adidas, because Adidas wasn't uh, playing the league at the time. Right, I okay. didn't know that. Yeah. But I, I was wearing Adidas when I got into the league, so uh, they didn't say anything in those first three years. But all, now all of a sudden we're in the playoffs, and it's a big stink. So they made a big stink about it, and they ended up looking like fools.
1: Yeah. And uh, you wore one that said Rizal on it. He thought it was funny, but he still finds you. <laughs>
2: No, he didn't find me for that one. Oh, okay. No, well, he actually thanked me thanked me for the free advertising, but he told me <laughs> I couldn't wear it in the Super Bowl. But I got a hold of the rule book somehow the two weeks prior to the Super Bowl, and I figured. And I'm going through it, and I said they they shouldn't have been able to find me the first time, so now I'm going to have some fun with them. Yeah. And so uh, I got sent headbands from all over the country. You know, some of just people's names on them, but I decided I would wear all charity. And if they find me for wearing a charity, they're going to look like idiots. And so I wore the Adidas one all through pregame warm-up, and the head referee kept following me around saying, I can't let you play with that on. I said, I know, I know. And then right before the, uh, we had the national anthem, I was standing there with Walter Payton, myself, the head ref. And as soon as the anthem was over, I went to put on my helmet, and he grabbed me and said, I can't let you on the field. And I said, I know, but you can't do a damn thing about this. And I pulled it down around my neck. And if you've seen any pictures from the Super Bowl, you can see Adidas around my neck as clear as, as day. Right. And he just started laughing. He said, yeah, you're right. And so I grabbed the first uh, charity. I think it was Juvenile Diabetes. My attorney's son was diabetic, so I wore that for him. And then every series I would change to a different uh, a different charity. And, I, and it ended up working out great for me because I didn't get fined. I got paid because Adidas wanted me to wear that headband. I said, it's not going to be on my head, but you'll be able to see it. Yeah, and they were very they were very happy with all the pictures they saw so I got paid by them didn't get fined by the league but the next year there was a whole lot of different uh, rules in that rule book
1: they were ready for you yeah exactly way to beat it Jim that's for sure uh, what keeps you busy uh, these these days lately Jim
2: well the last two months I've been trying to recuperate from an ankle surgery I had a uh, day before Thanksgiving I've been putting it off and putting it off for years. I played on a broken ankle, I don't know how long, and then it just got to the point I couldn't walk very well. And so they went in and just uh, cut some bone off, ended up getting an infection, and uh, had to go back into the hospital for about eight days, had two more operations, and uh, I've been on my couch now for the last month and a half, still trying to walk on this thing. But other than that, uh, I'm involved in a cannabis company with a couple of ex-ball players, Kyle Mm -hmm. Turley, offensive lineman, and Evan Britton another offensive lineman Ricky Williams was part of our group and uh, he's gone off on his own now yeah but our company's called Revenant we're out of uh, right outside of San Diego California and uh, it's, it's going pretty well right now and then I'm just <clears throat> I got five grandkids and I get I got one one here now that I haven't seen in a while so it's been fun having him here but other than that just relaxing just sold my house I'm looking for a new house uh, but other than that, he's uh, trying to get over this damn surgery. Right.
1: Well, we hope you uh, recuperate well, Jim, and uh, we wish you the best. It's been a pleasure speaking with you tonight. I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to be with us back here in New York.
2: No problem at all. And I, just before I came on, I heard you talk about Clark Gillies. He passed?
1: Yes. Yeah, Clark Gillies uh, passed the other day i uh, to hear
2: that. Clark was a great guy. What a
1: guy, right, to, Jim. Got
2: to play a lot of golf with him. I actually went to his tournament up there in Long Island a few years back. Yeah, he was a great great person. 67 like, is said, too how, young. How come you were so mean on the ice and you're, you're the nicest guy in the world? <laughs> <off> the <ice? laughs> yeah,
1: he, I tell you, when I had him on the show, what, what, what stories, Jim? Amazing. Oh, man. yeah, he has some
2: great stories.
1: Well, thanks again, Jim. You take care.
2: Okay, guys. Take care.
1: That's Jim McMahon, folks. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Turk Wendell and Jim McMahon, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you for joining us. Uh, Don't know who's coming up next. It's supposed to be Rob Kramer with a C. Don't move. See if he's in. See you next on February 6th. We're going to have some Knickerbocker talk that night. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks.
0: The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management,
1: or owners of WGBB.